today we are going to be discussing John Wycliffe as we read from S.M. Houghton's Sketches from Church History. Uh, those of you who are familiar with John Wycliffe will know that he is sometimes called the Morning Star of the Reformation. Uh, somebody who, while he was not the reformer who ushered in the Reformation, that would be uh, associated most uh, closely, obviously, with John, not John, sorry, uh, with Martin Luther. But uh, John Wycliffe, nonetheless, uh, blazed the trail and um, left behind him a body of work that other reformers drew from, uh, particularly people like uh, John Huss, and then later on, uh, Martin Luther. But definitely a man who was thinking along the uh, back to the Bible, ad fontes, as the rallying cry uh, became back to the sources, uh, thinking that, um, that took hold of the reformers later on. Wycliffe himself obviously knew Greek and Hebrew, and later on he would come to uh, translate uh, the Bible himself. Uh, the problem in Wycliffe's time, of course, was translating the Bible was all well and good, but then you had one copy of the Bible, and then what did you do with it? Well, you'd written your first copy by hand, and then you had to write the, the copy of the copy by hand, and then so on. And so it was an immensely laborious, tedious process. All of that was going to change at the end of the 1400s with um, Gutenberg's uh, printing press, which would uh, revolutionize, obviously, the dissemination of printed material and made it possible for men like Luther to get not only uh, Bibles, but tracts into the hands of ordinary people. And that was going to be really the, uh, the way that the Reformation was going to spread. <clears throat> One of the reasons why Wycliffe's uh, attempts at reform didn't uh, take hold was the fact that it was tremendously difficult for him to get uh, printed material uh, out. So the only way that information could spread was directly from him. Uh, and his followers, the Lollards. But we'll learn more about them in, in just a second. Uh, let us first, though, go before uh, the Lord and ask for his blessing upon the reading and preaching today. Not reading and preaching. The reading, let's ask the Lord to bless our time of reading, that's what I meant, of uh, sketches from church history. Please join me. God, our gracious Father, Lord, as we once again turn our attention to S.M. Houghton's work, Sketches from Church History, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand the way that you've been working in history to establish your church. We are so thankful that you raised up men with uh, that Jeremiah spirit, Lord, who had truly a fire in their bones to preach your word and to let people know the truth at a time when uh, things were dark. You were lighting candles, Lord, and sending out your light still. We thank you, Lord, that you've always preserved a remnant in every age, and we pray, Lord, that uh, now you would help us in a time of darkness to, to be light and salt as well. I pray, Lord, that we would have a good effect on a lost and dying generation. Help us then, O oh Lord, to, uh, uh, to spread the gospel wherever we go. Now, Lord, be the light of our minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 15, John Wycliffe. In the 14th century, a young man was enrolled at the University of Oxford, of whom his teachers had great expectations. John Wycliffe, for such was his name, had a brilliant mind, undaunted courage, and a silver tongue. He also developed great skill with the pen. The date of his birth and the precise spot where it took place are not known, but in all probability, it was during the period 1320 to 1324, and in or near the village of Old Richmond in Yorkshire. 
He would doubtless be about 16 years old when he went to Oxford, but to which of its colleges is uncertain. He remained in association with the university for the rest of his life, becoming first a fellow and then in 1361 the master of Balliol College. He became a doctor of theology there also. Wycliffe never forgot the terrible results of the plague that came to England in the year 1349. That would be the Black Death. Uh, his writings mention it frequently. It was called the Black Death and probably killed off one-third or even a half of the population. Among the clergy, mortality was very high. In the West Riding of Wycliffe's native country, more than two-thirds of them died. A village in North Oxfordshire had six rectors between 1349 and 1354. In 1366, Wycliffe came to the notice of King Edward III in connection with the refusal of the king to pay, pay tribute to the Pope. He wrote a pamphlet containing the arguments which seven lords used in Parliament when the matter was debated. Wycliffe argued that the Pope had no right to require the king to collect money from the church in England to be sent to Rome. The Pope was probably angry because England had long ceased to pay the annual tribute of 1,000 marks, which Pope Innocent III had exacted from King John in 1213. During the 1360s, when Pope Urban V had tried to recover the arrears, Edward III had consulted Parliament with the result that the tribute was emphatically and finally repudiated. And so there you're seeing a continuation of the uh, conflict between church and state in their various spheres that started under, well, had continued, we might say, uh, in the uh, conflict, the terrible conflict between Henry and uh, Thomas Becket, uh, which led to Thomas Becket's death, his martyrdom in Canterbury. Uh, the church in Rome is still asserting its privileges over all of the Christian uh, states in Europe and over their crowned heads, saying essentially that the church is as the sun, the kings are but moons, and they are under their sphere. You don't have any glimmer, and you won't for quite some time, of the separation of church and state. It didn't exist uh, anywhere in Europe or uh, anywhere in the world, but soon you are going to begin to see uh, the beginnings of it. But anyway, back to the conflict uh, in England between uh, the, uh, uh, the state and the Pope and uh, the way that Wycliffe was used in it. In the year 1374, Wycliffe represented his country and king at a meeting with papal officers at Bruges and further earned the king's gratitude. In the same year, he was appointed to the crown living of Lutterworth in the country of Leicester. But if the king had an admirer of uh, but if the king became an admirer of Wycliffe, it was not so with many of the clergy and the mendicant monks who hated him bitterly and tried to bring about his downfall. He sharply criticized the monks for their indolence, for their habit of begging, and for their perversion of religion. The worship of images and relics he called foolishness, and in no uncertain terms he denounced the sale of indulgences, masses for the dead, and processions and pilgrimages. The Pope he denounced as Antichrist, the proud worldly piece of, uh, priest of Rome, the most accursed of clippers and purse curvers, that is robbers. Clippers, uh, incidentally, was a, uh, was a term that referred to people who used to, um, they would cut pieces uh, from the currency, uh, which was minted in precious metals, uh, silver and gold uh, in particular. They would uh, take parts of it uh, and replace the, um, the content of the currency with less, uh, worthy, um, with less worthy metals. Also, you have to remember that the, uh, the currency was not standardized at this point in time uh, in terms of the size of the, uh, the coins that were minted. So you could, uh, you could literally cut pieces off of them and then uh, file them down and nobody would actually notice that uh, you had a, a clipped uh, piece of currency in any event. 
that's the the weird medieval origin of that particular term, but it's somebody who uh, is is uh, getting money by nefarious means. The bishops of the Church of England were greatly alarmed and summoned Wycliffe to appear before the convocation of the church at St. Paul's, London in the year 1377. He did so and was savagely attacked by his opponents, but protected by the king's son, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster. In the same year, the Pope issued five bulls, that is, decrees against him, and condemned him on 19 different charges taken from his writings. The great crisis of Wycliffe's life, however, came four years later, when he attacked the Roman doctrine of transubstantiation. That is the teaching that in the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the bread and wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ. As all priests claim the power to perform this so-called miracle, it raised them in the eyes of the church high above princes. Wycliffe's attitude in this matter aroused the greatest opposition. The king began to withdraw his support, and as for the University of Oxford, the heads and fellows of its various colleges were also in opposition to him. But he was so popular with the common people that his enemies feared to molest him. Possibly he might have brought about a better state of things if the church he had uh, had, sorry. Possibly he might poss uh, possibly he might have brought about a better state of things in the church had he used more moderation and had he possessed more patience. But he wished to overthrow with one blow the false teachings of Rome and to reestablish the pure, undiluted gospel. Yet he discovered, as time passed, that reformation could not be brought about in one year or in ten. It required long effort and much patience. Wycliffe's position was made more difficult because of the peasants' revolt in 1381, for he and his followers were blamed for it, although they were in no way responsible. John of Gaunt's palace of the Savoy, that is in London, was attacked, and finally the young king, Richard II, appeared in person to face the rebels, who were quelled and dispersed. John of Gaunt advised Wycliffe to abandon his work of reform. Instead, he published a further confession of faith. At this point, Parliament asked the Archbishop of Canterbury to call a church council to deal with matters in dispute. This he did. The council becoming known as the Earthquake Council because of the quake that occurred while it was in session. Wycliffe's followers looked upon this as a sign of divine intervention in their favor. Nevertheless, Wycliffe's doctrine was condemned. Very soon he was summoned to appear before the Pope, but he refused to go to Rome. Actually, at this time, there were two popes, each calling uh, the other Antichrist, although Wycliffe's followers and friends suffered persecution. Wycliffe himself remained untouched. He retired to Lutterworth and lived a quiet but active life there until his death in the last day of the year 1384. Now, one of the things that I uh, should know, they don't really touch on it, or Houghton, sorry, doesn't really touch on it in any great depth, was the, um, uh, the Avignon Papacy and the, the schism uh, that occurred there. Um, at that point in time, we remember that the popes were asserting their authority over kingdoms, but uh, as had been the case with the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, the, the emperors and the, the various heads of state were still asserting their power over popes and specifically the ability to put them in place. If you, uh, as the head of a state, controlled the pope, you had, oh, hey, Chloe, uh, you had tremendous power. Uh, you could determine, uh, for instance, um, decisions that, that dealt with kingdoms. Uh, later on, the, the ability of rulers to control popes, and usually they controlled popes uh, simply by physically intimidating them with their armed, uh, their armed might. In the case of the King of France, who established uh, the Avignon Papacy, what he did was he uh, essentially brought the Pope to, to Avignon, declared that uh, that was his new dwelling, and Avignon was in France, and so he could directly control the Papacy, which gave him uh, huge amounts of power. 
uh, as a ruler in Europe. He controlled the Pope, but another Pope was set up again in Rome, and so you had now dueling Popes making these uh, these decisions and both claiming infallibility, both excommunicating each other and their followers and so on. So it was a, a, a ludicrous situation, but a ludicrous situation that had been brought about by wrongly bringing in the position of the Pope. Um, what the Avion is, uh, sorry if I spell it wrong, okay, yeah, absolutely, Avignon is actually a, uh, it's a city in, in France, uh, an area in France where the, uh, the popes were brought to the Avignon papacy, so uh, essentially the king of France set up his own puppet pope in, uh, in the region of Avignon, and uh, that's where they, they were located for some time. The, the schism is eventually going to be um, healed and the, uh, the French papacy is going to be uh, gotten rid of and they'll have an Italian pope again, or a pope in Italy. Uh, the majority of popes were Italian, but um, uh, you're going to see a succession of popes from other areas as well. Uh, one of the worst popes of, um, of the period leading up to the Reformation uh, was a Spanish pope by the name of Borgia. Many of you will probably heard that name. But in any event, back to uh, the text. We've just learned that uh, Wycliffe obviously died in, on the last day of 1384. Towards the end of his life, Wycliffe organized an order of poor priests or preachers who diffused his teachings among the uh, people. Pitying their ignorance and spiritual blindness, he endeavored to bring the truth of the gospel to them by means of these preachers who traveled around clad in long reddish-brown gowns. The clergy derided them, but they became a formidable force to be reckoned with by their opponents. As a result of their work, many became believers. Wycliffe's enemies called them lollards, a word whose origin is uncertain. Some consider it a term of scorn, meaning idle folk, others that it refers to their habit of singing in praise of God. However, the greatest of all the works accomplished by Wycliffe has still to be mentioned. He translated the Bible into English so that all who were able to read or listen to the word when read could learn the truth of God. Of the book that had been the sealed-up book, he tore the clasps that the nation, with eyes unbandaged, might look thereon, and thereon find salvation, or therein find salvation. The Roman Church used the Latin Bible only in the version called the Vulgate and refused to have it translated into the language of the people. Wycliffe did not know either the Hebrew or Greek of the original scriptures. He had to make his translation from the Latin, and so it was not as accurate as could be wished, but still it proved to be a great blessing to the people. Also, all scriptures had to be written by hand, for as yet there was no printing press. The poor preachers took portions of it with them in their travels and read them to men and women in cities and hamlets, wherever they could get an audience. Wycliffe's was the first English translation of the whole Bible. Probably he had helpers in his work, but to what extent is not fully known. Hi, Debbie. Uh, early, the uh, early the following century, two dreadful steps were taken by Parliament and Church. A law for the burning of heretics and lollards, that is Wycliffeites, were called heretics, uh, was passed in 1401, and it did not remain a dead letter. The most notable sufferer being Sir John Oldcastle, that is Lord Cobham, in 1417. Also, the convocation of the church condemned Wycliffe's translation of the Bible. The hatred of the Roman church for John Wycliffe is perhaps best shown by an event which took place 40 years after his death. By order of the Council of Constance, the reformer's bones were to be dug up from their grave and refused reburial. This was carried out in 1428 when the Bishop of Lincoln burned the remains and scattered the ashes upon the waters of the River Swift, which runs through Lutterworth. 
It has been well said that as the ashes were carried by the swift to the Avon, by the Avon to the Severn, and by the Severn to the narrow seas, and by the narrow seas to the ocean, so the reformers' teachings and message reached out into all England, and from England into far distant lands. Indeed, Wycliffe was the morning star of the Reformation, which commenced in the 16th century. And though his bones from the grave were torn long after his life was ended, the sound of his words to times unborn, like a trumpet call, descended. So hopefully we would all have that kind of desire to see the word of God spread to the world that uh, John Wycliffe had. He had, um, unfortunately, very few resources available to him in doing that. But as I said earlier, his writings were to form a corpus of work that later reformers could uh, could work from. And indeed, uh, Martin Luther, John Huss uh, were familiar, as were other reformers, with the writings of John Wycliffe. Also, his creation of this group of, um, of wandering uh, gospel teachers, not really monks, called the Lollards, uh, who went from village to village preaching the gospel and handing out small tracts, had tremendous influence. In fact, uh, later on, when uh, you had the church actively persecuting the followers of Wycliffe, they could identify families uh, that had been influenced by Wycliffe and had become Wycliffeites because they knew more gospel than anybody else in the village. They could recite the Lord's Prayer and do things like that. It was um, so. It's a pathetic situation where you can tell that the uh, uh, <laughs> that the followers of the heretic. Uh, that you're looking for, you can identify them by the fact that they're the most godly people in the uh, in the area. Um, that will be the case later on, of course, in the full-blown Reformation in England, when uh, the British people watch as the godliest people in the land, the earlier Protestants, go to their deaths, uh, go to the stake in Smithfields in London, singing psalms uh, and showing a model of, of Christian courage and piety. Uh, and in fact, uh, Stephen Gardner, who was uh, Queen Bloody Queen Mary's Archbishop and uh, the superintendent of these persecutions, begged her to stop because of this example that they were setting. He said, Madam, you know, if you continue to execute Protestants, you will only succeed in making all of England Protestant because their example was so good. It is a pathetic thing when the enemies uh, point uh, to uh, to the followers of Christ, they hate them, but they can't deny their godliness. That was the case in, in Roman times. Um, it's a it's a shame that we as Christians aren't really capable of doing that today, pointing to the piety, the godliness, the, the Christian knowledge of Christians today. I wish it was more the case that we could uh, we could say simply look to the Christians if you want an example of of what Christianity produces.